Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Luke? Luke chapter 5. The passage should be on the screen, and if you have your Bible, you can read along and you can follow it on the screen if you'd like as well. I'm reading Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately the man stood up in front of them, and he took what, had been, what he had been lying on, and he went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Remarkable things. Greek paradoxa. We have seen things that look like a paradox. We don't get it. It's supernatural. We've never seen anything like this. We have seen remarkable things today. Jesus' teaching was drawing lots of attention. And there were crowds. This house that Jesus was in may well have been the house of a rich man because one of the versions says that there were tiles on the roof. Most houses in Palestine in those days didn't have tiles on the roof. They had a couple of timbers across the main room, and then they had sticks across the timbers, and then they put mud and clay and so on to fill in the gaps. One of the versions says that they dug down through the roof to get down into the house. This uh, scene takes place in Jesus' hometown, not Nazareth, but Capernaum. That's where Jesus moved when he became an adult. And it was in Capernaum that this uh, incident occurs. And archaeologists have excavated the site, and the largest house in that area was about 18 by 18. That means that the crowd would have to be at least about 50 people to fill in the room with people on the outside, even in the doorway, who couldn't get into the house. The crowd was there. By the way, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about crowds, they almost always are impediments or obstacles to people coming to Jesus. They're almost never helpful. And it's true that in 
church services where there's a large group of people, it may very well be that people are uh, embarrassed or afraid to come forward to receive Christ because of the crowds. So the gospel message goes to individuals as well as to large groups. And this is what happened here this day. Now, the, the crowds were curious, and many of them wanted to be healed. But the other people who were there, as your passage says, is verses 17 through 19, were a group of Pharisees, and the NIV says teachers of the law, but some other translations will say scribes. So teachers of the law and scribes were the same. These people eventually became Jesus' critics. They hounded him, they questioned him, they opposed him, and they wanted to kill him. The Pharisees were interested in the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. They wanted to make sure that no one violated the Torah. The scribes, or the teachers of the law, were rabbis. They were teachers. They instructed children in the Old Testament. And they were concerned about the written law, and they were concerned to teach it right. And the Pharisees were called separatists. That's what the word Pharisee means. And what they wanted to make sure is that no one violated the strict commandments in the Torah. And so what the Pharisees would do is to build a hedge or a fence around the Torah so to make sure that no one violated it. Now, if you're familiar with cold water, over by the First Baptist Church and by Leg Junior High School, there is a tower, a water tower there. And nobody who has any authority there wants anybody to climb that tower. So what they do is they build a fence a long way away from the tower. Just to make sure that nobody climbs the tower, they build a fence all the way around it to make sure nobody climbs the fence. There are signs there warning people about going in. That's what the Pharisees did. They tried to fence the Torah to make sure no one would violate it. One of the things they did, for example is to make sure that no one would blaspheme or dishonor the glory of God by pronouncing God's name. So they made sure that no one pronounced it at all to make sure that they didn't say the wrong word. So this is, this, these are the groups of people who were there in this house to listen to Jesus teach. And what Jesus did when he saw the friends bring the paralytic in is that he saw their faith. Now, I think it's perfectly understandable to think that not only did the friends have faith, but the paralytic also had faith, trust, hope that Jesus could heal. That's, that's what faith is. We have confidence and trust. We're leaning on the promises of God in Jesus. And so the paralytic wanted to be healed. We don't know exactly what it was. He probably was a, a paraplegic. Perhaps he fell and had a spinal injury, and that's why he was paralyzed. Perhaps he and his friends had been breaking into other houses, climbing up on the roof, and maybe the paralytic, when he was well, fell down through a roof and was injured. We don't know what he did. We don't know how long he'd been paralyzed. We don't know why he was paralyzed, but we do know that he was essentially helpless. And so his friends brought him in and put him down at the feet of Jesus. When I look at verse 17, the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. When Jesus came into his adulthood, 
and began to minister to people. He preached, he healed, and his healing ministry was literal. He, this, these are not just fairy tales and metaphors. Jesus actually did heal people. And what he was doing was fulfilling the last book of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, in his last chapter, says that someday the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in its wings. And Jesus comes, and that's exactly what he does. Almost everything, virtually everything that Jesus did and said was in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus knew his Bible very well, and he knew that everything in the Bible pointed to him. Now, the man's paralysis might have been due to specific sins. But all disease is ultimately related to sin. All of us, everyone in this room, has a virus. And we picked it up from Adam. And it's there, and it works its way into our lives, into our moral life, into our thinking, into our behaviors. Our wrinkles... Our hearing and vision loss, our aches and pains, our cancer, our strokes, our heart attacks, all of these things are rooted in the sinful human nature. We don't like to think about it. We do everything we can to avoid it, but it's constantly there. But Jesus came to reverse the effects of what Adam did. That's why Jesus came. It's one reason why you've trusted him for your salvation, for forgiveness of sins, and for healing, the healing of your spirit, your soul. So Jesus says to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be forgiven? Well, that word forgiven means that your sins have been canceled. Your sins have been covered. Your sins have been lifted. Your sins have been carried away. When I became a Christian in 1963, I was sitting out there somewhere in a church service, and God spoke to me. And believe me, I'd been in many church services, and God didn't seem to be speaking to me at all. I wasn't listening. But on that day in January of 1963, there's something. Something went on, and I started listening. And the preacher said, you want to come forward? Take a step. Take a step of faith and come up here and receive Christ. And I did. And I don't know, I can't explain it except that fact that something lifted, something lifted from me. A burden was lifted. And that's what forgiveness of sins mean. And we can't take that for granted. We can't just use it as one of our doctrinal points. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. These things are not only true, but they're precious things. They're deep things. They're the things that we hold on to when everything else gets cloudy. So, friend, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, Jesus knew the background of forgiveness. And he knew that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That paralytic couldn't be forgiven until Jesus himself fulfilled that promise on the cross. Now, that man trusted 
that Jesus could save him. And Jesus could save him and did save him, but it would happen after Jesus died on the cross for his sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So he was forgiven at that moment when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus knew that that forgiveness would ultimately occur when Jesus died on the cross. Here's what Colossians 2 says. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now, in my Sunday school class, I have a grease board in there, and it's big enough to write a whole bunch of stuff on it. And at the end of the class, I sometimes turn around and look at the mess on the grease board. It's got all kinds of things on there. And sometimes I go back there and I just take the eraser and I just erase it all. But what the Romans did when somebody got crucified, they took the charges of this person who was being executed. They put these charges on a piece of paper and nailed it to the top of his cross so that people would know what he was being executed for. Jesus not only erased our sins, but this written code against us. All of our infractions, all of our sins, little and big, all of those things written down on a slip of paper, those things were not just wadded up and thrown away. That list of things that you and I have done, those things were nailed to the cross when Jesus died. My sins were on a sheet of paper nailed to Jesus when he died on the cross. My son, my son or my friend, your sins are forgiven. The written code has been taken away. We need to have that dealt with in our lives. We don't need religion. We need Jesus to take away our sins in order to be forgiven. That's what this story points to. Now, the paralytic, this helpless man in this crowd of people, was not the only paralyzed person in that room. Paralysis has many forms. Some people are paralyzed by fear. They don't come to Jesus because they're afraid of what might happen. So they don't come. Some people are para paralyzed by their past. You don't think God knows about that and he offers forgiveness to you? Some people are paralyzed by insecurity. People are paralyzed by a lack of initiative. They just can't get up and do anything. Pride is a huge paralysis for people. Why would I want to learn something from this man, Jesus? Why would I want to have that king reign over me? I know enough about life. I don't need this man to take care of me. Pride can keep us from having our sins forgiven. I'll take religion because I can control it. I can come in here at 8.30 and I can leave at 9.30 and it's under control. But this man, Jesus, he, he's come to take over. Uh, he, he, he wants to be the Lord before 8.30. He wants to be the Lord after 9.30. And I can't control what Jesus might ask me to do. He's the Lord of glory. My son, your sins have been forgiven. Now, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy in verse 21. 
And because Jesus forgave sins, he forgave this man's sins. And they said, rightfully so. They said, only God can forgive sins. Only God can do that. Now, you and I, when we offend each other, we can, we can forgive each other. Ultimately, all sin is against God. Uh, but, but only God can forgive sins. So if we forgive each other, it's with, within the authority and the permission of God himself. And the Old Testament does say that God forgives sins. The book of Exodus says God is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love, faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The prophet Micah says, he asks a great question. Who is a God like you? And then he answers the question. Who is a God like you? A God who pardons sin and forgives transgression. That's who God is. And sometimes the Bible links sickness and diseases with sin. Psalm 103.3 says, The Lord forgives all your sins and he heals all your diseases. But, but Jesus was on to them. And he asked his critics a simple question in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Now we know what's easier to say. The easiest thing to say is your sins are forgiven rather than actually have somebody get up and walk who's been paralyzed. But the harder thing to do is to actually forgive sins. That's a lot harder to do than to heal somebody of some kind of paralysis. It's hard to forgive sins. It costs Jesus his life to forgive our sins. And we can't take that forgiveness for granted. We can't just check it off our list. It's huge in our lives, forgiveness of sins. And one of the reasons why we need to be reminded of that is because of our our stubbornness in forgiving other people of their sins. So it's hard to do that. But it was crunch time, as the sports announcers say. This is the time when Mr. Kelly had to hit a sacrifice fly in order for the Tigers to win. By the, by the way, I went to bed last night thinking that the Tigers had lost that game. Any of you Tiger fans there, I was just disgusted with the whole thing. And then I was told this morning that they came back and won in the 12th inning. So that, that, that's wonderful. Well, Jesus uh, gets to the heart of the story in verse 24. You know, look at verse 24. It's on your bulletin, and I want to focus our time a little bit on that. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Other people, even demons, called him the Son of God. But that wasn't Jesus' favorite title. The first time in Luke, when Jesus talks about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. And Luke records the Son of Man 25 times. All of them come from the lips of Jesus. Nobody else ever calls him that. Jesus calls him that. And he doesn't explain what Son of Man means here. But like I said earlier, Jesus was completely familiar with the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament because he was the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And everything that the Old Testament said pointed to him. He knew that. So Jesus calls himself, he says, the Son of Man. He didn't just mean to say, I can forgive sins. I have authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And the Son of Man is what Jesus said. And he's the only one in the Gospels to use it. He uses it here in Luke for the first time. 
So our story is one of a series of examples. This little story here is one of a whole series of little stories in Luke in which Jesus confronts opposition, human opposition and satanic, demonic, spirit opposition. Jesus comes and confronts it. In summary, here's what he does. He drives out demons. He rebukes fevers. He shows professional fishermen where they can find the best catch of their life. He heals a man with leprosy. He has a man with a withered hand, and he heals his hand on the Sabbath day, too. And he, compa- he commands tax collectors like Levi. He commands them to leave everything and follow him. And that's what he did. He even defeated Satan's temptations in the wilderness. And people were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Chapter 4, verse 32. Jesus didn't preach a good sermon. He preached with authority. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he has a whole string of these. He says, you have heard that it was said. That's what it said in the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus had authority to interpret the Bible. He's our chief interpreter. And the Holy Spirit comes to us and helps us understand the Bible by pointing us to the Lord Jesus in our Bible reading. A lot of times in our Bible reading, what we want to do is we want to find some little hook or little principle or something that will help us. And that's good. That's fine. And it's there. But what we sometimes forget to think of and do is that in our Bible reading, the Bible essentially is pointing to Jesus. And it's really all about him, not all about me. I'm a sideshow. He's the central character. So this authority was not just the ability to forgive. He had the ability to forgive, but authority means he has the right to forgive. Now, we're going to put up on the screen where I think Jesus got his son of man. He's just not saying that I'm just some man. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in my vision, at night, I looked And there before me was one like a son of man. That is, he had a human body. He was like a son of man. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days. That's God himself. And he was led into his presence. And this son of man was given what? Authority and glory and power. This is the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. He has the right to forgive your sins. He has the ability to forgive your sins. And when he died on the cross, he accomplished forgiveness of sins. That's why on the back board here, we have the cross. Because the cross is the key to the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy. He was doing what he had the authority to do. That's why Jesus is not only our Savior, but Jesus is our Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. He's the one who calls the shots. He's not just the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus had the authority to do what he did. When I was a first-year teacher back in 1966, I had 120 teenagers who probably didn't want to be there. And I'm not sure I wanted to be there. But one day in my world history class, 
I had just about had it with a certain student. And it was my first real discipline problem. And I was insecure, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know if, if I could be, if it was too rough or too easy. I didn't know what to do. I was a first-year teacher. So what I did is what principals don't like teachers to do. I took this student down to the office, and we're going to have a sit-down with the principal. And so the three of us sat there, and, and I'm, I'm scared because if this principal doesn't back me up, I'm probably going to wash out. I won't be a teacher. It's, it's going to happen. I just know what I start feeling all these things. And that principal sat there. He had, he had been in an accident, so he had this hand that he was constantly exercising. So he sat there at his desk, and he started moving this hand around. I thought, he's going to come down on me for sure for bringing this kid down to him. He's got other things to do. And he got red in the face, and he stood up, and he took this student, and he backed him right up to the wall, and he said, if Mr. Knapp says this is the way it is in your room, then this is the way it's going to be. And if it doesn't happen, I'm going to call mom and dad, and we're going to have a little vacation. Would you like a little vacation from this school for a while? Back in those days, they didn't want to do that. I can't tell you how important it was for me to have the authority of my principal backing me up in my first year of teaching. Jesus had the authority to do what he said he would do. And that's why this man got saved and was healed. The man stood up in front of them. He took his mat and he went home praising God. And let me just wrap this up with a few points. First of all, these miracles and these healings that Jesus did, though historical... They actually happened, okay? But they're meant to establish Jesus' authority. And I want to call your attention to a very important verse in Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, because there we learn why Luke wrote the gospel. Why did Luke write these things? He wrote them so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This morning, as a believer... You need to have that certainty reinforced because your own doubts and the world system and Satan are all working against your convictions. And so the word of God helps us understand our faith more certainly, more securely. That's why these miracles are in there, not just to impress. Secondly, this authority is also authority over the demon world, the satanic world, the spirit world. So we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against, our struggle is against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of this present age, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's our struggle, not flesh and blood. And we have the Lord Jesus who came and defeated that Satan world. And we have him In our corner, Christus Victor, he's the victor over Satan. And don't let Satan blow it out. Number three, forgiving sins is more important than healing diseases. Do you believe that? Healing diseases is on our mind a lot, especially as we get older. But forgiveness of sins is much more important than that. And then number four, 
we really ought to forgive each other. There is, there is no reason, there's no sane reason why we can't have a forgiving spirit. When you think of all of the offenses that we have committed against a holy God, among others, ignoring them for much of our life, here comes a scripture from the Apostle Paul. This is from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What does it say next? Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This message of the forgiveness of sins is so important that Jesus includes it in the Great Commission. He says that Son of Man will suffer and die, and on the third day be raised from the dead, Luke 24. And then he says, I want you to preach forgiveness of sins to all the nations. That's what I'm preaching this morning, is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is our message this morning. Jesus has come to forgive your sins. And you may be sitting here paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed. You know that you've never received Christ as your Savior. You know for sure that that hasn't happened yet. And yet you continue, you're paralyzed, you continue to reject that. And I'm, I'm here to say this morning that Jesus has come to forgive your sins, and he will do it. He has the power and the authority to do it, and he can do it today if you'll learn to trust him. But we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing together before we leave, and then I'll close in a word of prayer.